the Spring 2019 Metagame and SCG Con predictions on episode 90 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 90 of So Many Insane Plays, our Spring 2019 Metagame update. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this episode, I do want to talk about some upcoming tournaments. Locally here in Michigan, we have June 16th, Proxy Vintage at Perfect Storm Comics and Games in Battle Creek. So come play Vintage with us there. That's that's a full proxy event starting at noon. More importantly, on the national and international scale, we have our announcement finally for Eternal Weekend 2019. Woohoo! Which is which is happening da, 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 Halloween weekend. So we finally have our announcement. We finally know when. It's happening in Pittsburgh again at the same location, the David Lawrence Convention Center. And Halloween is is one of those things, right? It's kind of polarizing. <laughs> I've heard a lot of folks say, no, no, not Halloween again. And those folks are mostly family folks, which I can understand, right? Halloween is a holiday, especially one that children like to participate in. So I'm and very sympathetic. that I know. <laughs> That's true. Plenty of adults as well. I am very sympathetic to that. I don't have children myself, so I'm not in the mode to be entertaining them on Halloween, but I am very saddened to hear that a number of my friends who are may not be able to attend for that primary reason. I really do hope that Eternal Weekend can get off of ha- uh, Halloween weekend and going forward. Yeah. Well, I'm still going to enjoy it, but it is more difficult to... I mean, it, it is a bummer to miss Halloween at home. Yeah, but it is. Absolutely. We'll keep this space. We'll keep you updated on more details, including prizes. You know, are they going to do the top eight on Sunday again? You know, mm-hmm. old school. I, I actually really liked having the old school on Sunday, but I did miss the team trio last year. We'll see. Yeah. Yes, exactly. More news on Eternal Weekend as we have it. Steve, in terms of content updates, you've got a new tournament report that's pretty exciting. Yeah. I do. It's called Adventures with Alpha. It's on Eternal Central. Nice. We'll put it in the show notes. Please check it out. It's my. It's my kind of exploration of Alpha Card 40, Alpha 40, mm-hmm. um, as well as a tournament report that I played at the Wizards Tournament um, with the most insane deck ever built. And that's not a, <laughs> not hyperbole, really yeah. the best deck ever built, ever physically constructed, certainly with Alpha Cards and probably ever in the history of Magic. So that was pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> it was yeah. pretty cool. Um, but I also, don't think that's hyperbole either. <laughs> but also, it was just fun to, you know, the article describes the different approaches in, in Alpha. I'll just mention a couple weird things. So. The way that this alpha thing is structured is it was a side event at NoobCon, which is the so-called old school championship in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And it's only alpha, it's first edition rules, which means you play only with alpha cards, and there's no sideboards, no mulligans, but you get to draw (laughs) on your first turn, even if you're on On the play. play. Um, And they use no errata, which means you have to interpret the cards as they read. So Mm -hmm. it results in some... And as they're printed. And as they're printed. So it results in some weird things like Black Knight being invulnerable to balance, yeah, because it can't be affected by white magic. You, you can't you can't cop 
black a, a black knight. Um, Interesting. But some of my favorite things are Frozen Shade. The alpha text of it just says uh, black plus one plus one. So it never it never expires. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite one overall, and of course, there's alpha misprints, so those are awesome too. But yeah. actually, my favorite is the um, uh, the boons, crystal yeah. rod, uh, iron star, all those cards. The, under the Al first edition rules, you can play a spell and then spend as much mana as you have to gain life. <laughs> so if you have 10 mana and you play a one mana spell you can just gain nine life that way it's <laughs> pretty funny and these are 40 card decks so they become yeah. very annoying to deal with now i didn't have to ever deal with that because every single one of my games was a turn one kill except for one game where uh-huh. my opponent was able to double twiddle my two black vises um for those of you who haven't seen it and, and i'll spoil it a little bit my deck was basically um it, it was basically like like 11 Mock Sapphires, 4 Black Lotus, um, and 12 Ancestral Recalls. So, <laughs> yep. basically, it's impossible for me to lose unless my opponent can either balance me to zero cards in turn one, or mind twist the same, mm-hmm. um, or do what I'm doing, the channel fireball me yeah. on turn one. Yeah. Um, I did get mind twisted in a test game down to two cards against Brian Weissman, and the two cards were Ancestral Recall and, and uh, Mock Sapphire. <laughs> but I actually lost because I ancestraled into mana and then drew ancestral and I think I hit black vise and mana and um he was able to I I can't remember what it was exactly. There's a video of it somewhere of him beating me in a test game with nice. that. But I didn't lose nice. a game in the tournament. But it, the more importantly it's just exploring the format. So I talk about you know you think about alpha, it's you know single set constructed. There's basically three ways to win. You can deck your opponent, you can do a creature attack, and all the colors have basically 18 to 19 creatures that can be used on offense mm-hmm. with artifacts providing another half dozen. But there's a lot of direct damage in, in Alpha, Kevin. A lot. Yeah. So think about like just burn. Obviously, you get Fireball, Disintegrate, Lightning Bolt, and Earthquake. But Blue also has Psionic Blast and Volcanic Eruption and Prodigal Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's just actually scratching the surface. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Black there, Artifacts, there's a lot of direct damage like Dingus mm-hmm. Egg, Black Vise. Um, there's cards like Pestilence and Rod of Ruin, mm-hmm. and then there's the whole cycle of Curses um, <laughs> and Psychic Venom. So the Curses, you know, like Feedback, Warp Artifact, they can actually accumulate pretty quick. I think they actually had to do Errata on one of the Curses, because one of the Curses just says, take a damage on your upkeep. I think it's Warp Artifact. Mm-hmm. It's unclear whether it's every turn or just on its controller's upkeep. I yeah, think they it, arra- Go ahead. They used, the, they used the phrase on upkeep a couple of times <laughs> in Alpha, which is which is hilarious <laughs> it was so much fun i love playing it and you actually got to do a little bit of testing with me um, yeah listeners of the show might remember about well that's uh, about eight months ago now when we were at eternal weekend last year one of the things we did is we stayed up all night before uh before one of the tournaments that you were playing in testing different configurations of alpha card 40 decks and we had the uh, the decks that were just like eighteen twenty two, right? Eighteen lands and twenty two threats. Plague they were rats. all the same. Yeah, yeah or Banal Shiro, Plague Rats. <laughs> so we just right. used draft leavings to put together the old eighteen twenty two deck with a whole bunch of different configurations. That was pretty funny. Well, one of the yeah, things the that we format's dis- funny. One of the things we discovered during that session, and you, I mean, you you can share it. Go ahead. What was one of the big insights? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know which one you're well, referring the to. Well, Shiro, and like what we learned about oh. Hero. So, yeah, so Steve, you were testing a deck that had primarily jade statues and as juggernauts. 
and juggernauts as the attacks and the 1822 deck that was only planes and banalish heroes was actually really really hard to beat because banding was so op yeah and the deck would so consistently just generate threats that could not be could not be dealt with with other creatures but what we learned specifically was that Juggernaut is really bad against the Banalish Hero deck. <laughs> but Jade yep. Statue was Jade really Statue good. Jade Statue was good. Yeah. yeah, because it punched above its weight with the six toughness. <laughs> yeah. They had and to have six Banalish Heroes to fight it. Which is really hard. You know, yeah. with, you can pick some off with some fireballs and so on. That deck was especially um, weak against uh, Earthquake, though. <laughs> yeah, gets owned by Earthquake. So yeah, I, I love the Plagrat. The Plagrat deck got out of hand almost every game. It was just reliably <laughs> difficult to deal with. Well, and we also like once you add it, because you can play twenty-two Plagrats, um, <laughs> you have to decide if you want to add rituals. I think we concluded that the ritual version was superior. Yeah, that's true. Being able to play to the board faster uh, was much much better than the 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 one or two cards you get down the road. You know. So, yeah, we had a, a really fun time exploring that format from a budget-conscious standpoint. Obviously, none of those decks can hold a candle to the deck you played, but there's a very select few players on this planet of Earth who can put together yeah. a, a seriously degenerate Alpha Card 40 deck. A kind of a coda to that, I didn't put this in my term report, but um, Brian Weissman and Daniel Chang uh, met Peter Atkinson, who apparently is playing Alpha 40, and he actually oh, nice. built a deck that's not dissimilar, terribly dissimilar from mine. It's not quite as busted, <laughs> but okay. it has the core of a lot of ancestrals and sapphires and lotuses. He's got wow. he's got like a, maybe like a bunch of juggernauts though in there instead. Wow, I just interesting. Had, yeah. So if there's someone who could come close to that, I would expect Peter Atkinson, you know, the yeah. former president of Wizards, to be able to build uh, build it. Um, well, and anyway. there's not too many folks in Wizards today that were around during those times, right? There's there are some yes. old school players like Mark Rosewater is an old school player, but, but he wasn't there when it was created. Yeah, right. And not all of them were like Peter Atkinson and retained a whole whole bunch of original Alpha cards for that reason. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I also wanted just to mention I got a chance to play a NoobCon, which was awesome. I went um, five and two. I think it was five and two was the the record. I had two losses. Look, X two. I think that's I what you told me. Yeah, yeah I, I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> um, how many Swiss rounds it was. I know I had two losses. Um, I built a really cool, innovative deck under Swedish rules. I don't think it's viable under um, under four strip mine rules because what I did was I played blue, black, red, and I'd never seen anyone play with hypnotic specters in that deck and like the Serendipifreet package. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just awesome. I love that deck. It was so much fun. I lost a game to double library. I matched a double library, which happens um, in a one-strip mine environment. And my <laughs> other match loss is a completely unwinnable match. I beat everything else, including uh, Ole Rade. Um, it was really fun to play him. He was playing the Atog deck. And Martin Berlin won, a, won one of these noobcons in the past. But the other deck I lost to was a Russian playing mono green elves, Kevin. Nice. Interesting. Literally unbeatable. Without Earthquake, I cannot beat that deck. I had turn one <laughs> library against it in, in one game and turn one Serendib in another game, and I just got steamrolled. Just totally wow. steamrolled. Because all he would do is go turn one elf, turn two double elf, turn three triple elves. And I, <laughs> I can't beat it, honestly. He would play with um, Pendlehaven and Naf's Asp on top of that. He would play like <laughs> Elves of Deep Shadow, Elves of, you know, um, Llanowar Elf. Fiendhorn Elf, yeah. The Ice uh, Age no, one? There's no what? Ice Age, but he just no. played. All elves, basically, and and um, I think he might have had a couple of uh, Gosbon somewhere, and, yeah. but, and some. Oh, so I was, they're not all mana-producing elves, though. Yeah, yeah just okay. could not beat that deck. It was just got completely swarmed. It was absurd how fast I died. 
I was like, God, <laughs> awesome. I, I used to play with uh, Earthquake in my blue-red variant decks, but I cut it a long time ago because I have you know so many bolts. But it's completely disadvantageous to be trading like Psionic Blast for an elf. Uh, but anyway, I had a <laughs> fantastic time. It was a great time, and I would definitely play that deck again. I thought it was just really good. Nice. What Do you have any thoughts after having played in a Swedish event about the Swedish format versus the Eternal Central format? So you couldn't have set this up better for me. Um, David Firthbard, who is a fantastic um, ambassador for Old School, tweeted last week. He said, let me actually read the tweet. It took us a while, but a few dozen monkeys with typewriters finally stumbled into bridging Atlantic Old School Magic Band Restricted List exactly in line with Stephen Menendian's recommendations from my article last year. Coincidence or outrageous fortune? And then he linked to my article. So he has exactly um, brought Atlantic in the line with what I think is the ban and restricted list should be. So I, I personally love Atlantic, but Swedish is the next best thing. So okay. yeah. Interesting. The Atlantic rules are, I think, where it's at, but Swedish, I prefer, just, I just don't think strip mine should be unrestricted. Although I do think that um, library can be problematic, I think there are other ways to deal with it. Like the winning, one of the first place deck lists in the Swiss um, had uh, main deck city in a bottle as a way of dealing with it, and the Atog decks had main deck city in a bottle, which was sweet. Um, yeah. The other thing, I actually think that Mistress Factory is too good now. So I'm really? gonna, yeah, I do. I'm gonna update my on an annual basis my suggested banner restricted list update, but I think Factory should be restricted. It's just, wow. it's, it's just there's too many factories. And the, the problem with factory is that it's so much better than it was back in the day because of, you know, rules changes where you can now just pump. It's just, if you look at top eights, they're like seven, eight factory decks per top eight. And with strip mine yeah. restricted, which is my preference, I think you just have to have factory restricted. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think we've hit that point. Um, but anyway, I, I, so to answer your question indirectly, Atlantic is my preferred rule set. I think it's awesome. But I just want to mention a couple other things from the trip. So we went, we did a kind of made it a European vacation. We went (laughs) to Switzerland, the Alps. We went to uh, Germany, Sweden, Denmark. It was it was a lot of fun. We we went, but the highlight, one of the highlights, was we went to the I'm going to mispronounce this Kunschafe Art Museum in Hamburg. And it turns out that the Art Museum in Hamburg, they the Germans love David Kaspar Friedrich, who did. the Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, which was the art piece that Doug Lynn selected for the cover of my gush book. Right, so we right. were wandering around uh, Hamburg, and I said, let's go to a museum. And the funniest thing happened, we got to the museum, and there's a huge tapestry hanging over the front of the museum on the edifice, yep. and it's this piece of artwork that's the cover of my gush book. And so Brian <laughs> Weissman and I, and, and we all start jumping around and laughing. <laughs> And the, the funniest part about it is, so it's obviously an amazing piece of art. Otherwise, I wouldn't have agreed to have it be the cover. Um, but what David Kaspar Frederick does is he, he's, he does an incredibly um, still nature settings that have barely any human elements, but there's a psychological depth to his art. You know, there's a kind of like a, both a disturbing undercurrent, but also an, a kind of an analytical component to his art, both in the composition and also what's happening. It evokes a mood. And it very much is in line with kind of the German mindset, whatever that stereotype is. You know, analytical, thoughtful, contemplative, but also, you know, likes beauty, likes Wagner, things like that. <laughs> and when I was going to the museum, like, every, all the Germans in that museum, like, we would ask, where's the, you know, they would direct us, the different docents, and, you know, from the person who took our tickets, who, who we paid our, our, for our tickets, to the persons who directed us, to the docents, you know, 
every time we mentioned it, they kind of lit up. You know, you could tell Germans loved David Kaspar Frederick, and they just adored <laughs> this piece of art. And all, because the room with all of his art was in the very apex, in the very back of the museum. You know, it was like <laughs> the heart of the museum. But the way in which they responded, and we said, We're, we want that piece. And I would just actually take my brochure out, point to it, because I don't know German. You know, and they would just like, and they just like a light up, like there's like an awe and reverence. It was just remarkable, <laughs> remarkable. So we had a wonderful time. I have a rule: never travel, never travel with more than three guys, because people <laughs> will be doing stupid things. You'll get hangover situations if you have travel with more than three men. Um, <laughs> but um, we still did a lot of stupid stuff. Like we did, Brian Weissman and Daniel Chang were doing foot races in the in the Atlantic and the Alps, like in in literally doing like 40-yard dashes in the, in the Alps just to see who was faster. Um, nice. But it, it was fun. It was just so beautiful. I'll never forget it. Great, great time. Will you go back to NoobCon in the future? So that's the thing. Next year, there will be no NoobCon. Uh, no. Magnus, Lord Magnus, is um, handing it off to the Italians um, next year. Um, I would love to do it again. Um, maybe go to Italy next year. We'll see. I think there's going to be a huge 2020 old school event in New York that everyone's organizing. Um, I think in May-ish, so I'll probably aim for that next year instead of NoobCon, but we'll see. All right, cool. In that case, let's move on to our review of the Spring Medigame. So, Steve, it's been a while, but we like to do metagame updates on this show, as you know, and when we do so, we try to take a circumspect look looking at both online, Magic Online results, as well as paper results. And in this case, the paper results are severely diminished from prior shows. That is to say, we have a standard where we look at tournaments of 32 players or more, and inside of that standard, and inside of the year 2019, tcdex.net has only reported three paper tournaments all year yeah all year three paper tournaments of 32 players or more so so that okay so that doesn't mean there aren't more that just means they haven't been reported uh that's possible and or there are smaller tournaments happening at places that used to be larger but for whatever the reason tcd tcdex.net really only has three events for us and what's worse one of them only has the winning deck listed which is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, the MKM series so, that was in Ghent in April only lists the first paste deck for some reason. I tweeted at them just to see if they if I could get a response because their coverage page doesn't even mention vintage, which makes it seem God. like the event didn't even happen. So I don't know. But TCD Dex says that there was a 43-player tournament that day. So you and I only have two real tournament results to analyze, and only one of those events has been since the release of War of the Spark. So it's difficult to integrate these results into the much more frequent and reliable results that we get from Magic Online. But we can still talk so about don't, them. So don't, don't keep us in dispense, suspense. What is it? <laughs> well, so prior to, um, much prior to War of the Spark releasing back in February, there was a 34-player event, the Four Seasons event. And that deck, that top eight was a mixture of Paradoxical Outcome and Jace Control, really. There were two Jace Control decks and another um, Gush Mentor deck plus another Fish deck in that top eight. So that's four healthy blue-based decks and then two Paradoxical decks and one Outcome deck. It was won by Jace Control. 
It looks like it's a, an Italian event, by the way. Yes. Based upon the names <laughs> that, <laughs> I'm looking. That, I, that <laughs> Angelo is, Di Vincenzo. <laughs> yeah. And the deck that won that deck, now it's we call it Jace Control, and that's kind of an old school definition, right? This is a Tesserator deck. This is nice. This is a big blue deck with five Planeswalkers and Mana Crypt and Sol Ring and Key Vault in it, right? So this is a little bit of a throwback. There's not much analytically to say about that. It was back in February. It, it could be an anomalous result, but the real interesting paper result we have was from just a few weeks ago at the emperor of vintage tournament at hariruya in japan i love that yeah. name by the way on may 5th they had 42 players and this top eight is cool it's cool for a bunch of reasons one is that the finals was car shops mirror not just a car not just a car shops mirror right both of them had traxos one had two and one had three first and second place so that's a really interesting final for a post-war metagame no karns in either of those decks of note but almost every one of the other decks in the top eight had um war of the spark cards in it in fact uh, four out of the five remaining decks had war of the spark cards the rest of the top eight consisted of a bug deck with one narset another bug deck with no narset a shops deck that had two of each karn in it two great creators in the main and two scion of urza in the sideboard nice a pair of draw seven PO decks, the style that became popular during the London Mulligan online, right? Well, someone, yeah. two players here ported those over to paper. So these are a, a par a paradoxical decks that have Time Twister and Wheel of Fortune in them. One of them had three Narset, the other had four Narset. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last deck. <laughs> All in on Narset. I know. The last deck was a really interesting Jeskai Mentor variant where there were no red cards in the main. The red was exclusively limited to blasts in the sideboard. But it had three main deck Narset, and in the sideboard, interestingly, one Dovin's Veto. Wow, that's a that's a definitely an important data point <laughs> for our uh, post set review uh, report card. It is, and there's so there's lots of interesting features of this top eight. But there's one other thing I want to point out, and that is that both of the bug decks in this top eight featured one copy of Thief of Sanity, which remind yeah, Thief of Sanity is a Guilds of Ravnica creature. For one blue-black, Creature Spectre, it's a 2-2 flyer. Whenever Thief of Sanity deals combat damage to a player, look at the top three cards of that player's library, exile one of them face down, put the rest into their graveyard. For as long as that card remains exiled, you may look at it, you may cast it, you may spend mana of any color. So... What is going on here? Where did this card come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a really interesting mixture of Ophidian and the, the new Ashiok, right? It's got a little yeah. bit of that card advantage from Ashiok, or sorry, card advantage from Ophidian, and then a little bit of that disruptive element of taking cards from your opponent and milling them a little bit, like Ashiok. So it's really interesting. One copy in both of those decks. You, it's the sort of card that can really disrupt a blue-based matchup, right, if it gets going and sticks. So this is the one paper event we've got to point to for the impact of War of the Spark on the vintage metagame. And it's actually, it's actually very interesting, in my opinion, because there are two copies of that PO deck that were popularized online because of the London Mulligan. Now, I have no reason yeah, to believe that this they event, Yeah, I have no reason to believe this event was using it. that. Is it possible? The, sure, so but the, I don't I don't believe so. So for the third event, you have the winner. Did you did I miss it or did you tell us what it was? Oh no, I did not say yet. Yeah. The third event, which was the MKM series in Ghent in April on the thirteenth, forty three players was won by Rug Pyromancer, which is a pretty straightforward Rug Pyromancer deck by today's definition with with three main deck pyromancers. And Ghent is in Belgium, by the way. Yeah, okay. Just one. <laughs> so that's uh, so all your. That's it in terms of the the highly relevant uh, tournament size for Paper Magic for this year. It's really strange. So 
So every single event was either in Europe or Japan. That's right. I mean, the United States at this point is known for large tournaments, but only specific ones throughout the year. And NYSE and Eternal Weekend haven't happened yet. Neither has SCG Con. Right. Yeah. So weird. That's so weird. I mean, didn't there used to be regular events in the PA, New Jersey, New York area? Uh, You know, you're right. And I will take it upon myself after we record this to ask around and see if those events are not getting reported or if they're not large enough to pass our threshold these days. Interesting. So it's not a lot of data, but do you see any trends that you want to point to? Well, the the biggest trend that I can see is simply that our two biggest hitters from um, War of the Spark were, from a discussion standpoint, were Karn and Narset. And Narset is a huge hit. There's no denying it, right? There are out of out of eight decks in this top eight, there are four decks including Narset with a range of one to four copies. There's only one deck that features Karn the Great Creator, but it's in exactly the kind of home that we predicted, right? Uh, a workshop deck that's looking to lock people out and or have a flexible tutor solution. So I think the effect of War of the Spark is still yet to be fully teased out and heavily contingent on the presence of the London Mulligan in Vintage. And we'll see how that compares in your results from the Magic Online challenges. All right, let's turn to that right now. All right. So, where to begin? I have accumulated all of the Vintage Challenge Top 8s. As everyone knows, there's one Vintage Challenge per week on a Saturday, and it's actually gotten quite large in a lot of cases. Um, They could be 70, 80 players in these events, but I think typically in the 60 range, high upper 50s, which certainly meets our threshold. Um, There are a couple things I want to point out. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about deck trends, archetype trends, like we did in the last last time we did this, month over month. but I'm also going to talk about some weird things that are happening. Um, there are two <laughs> caveats. The first is that there are quarterly vintage playoff qualifiers for the vintage online championship in next next January. So that event substitutes for a vintage challenge, but it's not an open tournament. It's um, You have to qualify by earning enough points, qualification points, to enroll. Now, we were surprised mm-hmm. because I think we predicted it would be like not even... You know, I forget that pays out to 64 players, I think. And we predicted like 32 players. There were over 50, almost 60 players in that event. But obviously it's stacked because everyone there has basically top eighted a vintage challenge or grinded a bunch of points out of vintage leagues and so on. So it's highly competitive. I think that data point is more important. The the other thing (laughs) to point out is that so out of the 52 challenges this year, 20 so far have been reported, meaning that. There have been 20 weeks at the date of this recording that um, have have passed uh, and data has been reported. Mm -hmm. Um, But three of those in the middle of April were during a period where the London Mulligan was being tested on Magic Online, meaning that that, the date for that was actually, I think, uh, April 10th to May 1st. So the April 13th, April 20th, and April 27th Vintage Challenges are notable because they had the London Mulligan um, in in application or implementation. So in the analysis, Mm -hmm. I'm going to remind everyone of that. There are some really amazing uh, findings that I've uncovered in in, uh, analyzing this data, Kevin. So 
So I'm really excited to share. So let's just, the other thing I'm going to mention is, um, as I did the last time we did this, I've been tracking what I, what's called the Simpson index or the Genie Simpson score, which is a measure of diversity and dominance, kind of like uh, diversity and balance rather. And I'm going to, I want to be precise Mm -hmm. because we need to be careful. We talked about the difference between those two things, but it's a, it's a conflation measure. um, And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what those scores are to try and give us not only a sense of what the metagame looks like, but also how healthy it is through these different months. So let's start. Which archetype do you want me to start with, Kevin? I want to talk, start with the presumptive leader, which okay. is Shops. Good, good choice. Last year, we talked about how Shops was just steady Stanley, you know, just like even and steady through the, whole, <laughs> through the whole year. It was the best overall performing archetype. Not only did it win one of the marquee events, the majors, but it also was just incredibly consistent over the year. This year, I think that is proven true with one enormous exception. Okay, so here okay. we go. Are you ready? Pay close attention. Yep. So shops in January was 31% of top eights, and then it was 31% of top eights in February, and it fell to 18% of top eights in March for a quarter one average of 26% over a quarter of the metagame. Pretty much what you would expect for shops, mm-hmm. wouldn't you think? In this last couple of months, or last, I would say, 12 to 18 months, yeah, that is right. about what I expect. It's pretty much in the lead. Now, um, I'll just spoil this and say, um, in January and February, it was the most, had the highest percentage of top eights of any archetype or aggregate archetype. So, shops was ahead of everything mm-hmm. else. Um, and that was not quite true at the quarterly level, but we'll come back to that. So, 31% in January, 31% in February, 18% in March. Drops to 13% in April. Wow. Now, think about that. I wonder yes, why exactly. that is. <laughs> so, think about that. Now, if you go back and look at, 18, at 2018, we, we talked about the vacillations that all the decks had over the year. Um, Shops was, over the course of the year, it was um, 23% of top eights over the course of the year, which was more than anything else. Um, but generally, it had months where it was like 33%, 34%. And it fell in one month, that was May of last year, to 13%. It was, its, it was its trough, its bottom. So we're seeing that kind of cyclical behavior here, but I, I think it's cyclical for a different reason. <laughs> so, th- so, so that's remarkably low. And then in May, it skyrocketed, blew past its previous markers to 38% of top eights in the three May top eights so far. Wow. That's higher than any prior month last it is. year, isn't it? And I think it's driven by a different development, which is which we'll yeah. talk about, but you've already alluded to, and I won't hide the ball, Karn. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come yeah. back to that. But we'll dive into that more, and we'll talk about those decks, but let's keep it the percentage level for the moment. What deck do you want me to talk about next? Well, if Shops wasn't in first at the Cordy level, then I'm guessing it was Xerox. That's correct. All right. <laughs> Xerox did very well at the beginning of the year. And it's not terribly surprising when you think about Matt Sperling's run and kind of how he transformed Xerox at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question that Rug in particular was just, I think, kind of overtaking and, and boat racing other decks, <laughs> um, you know, at it, it, the deck level. Yeah. So Rug... Just to give you the raw numbers, there were seven rug decks in top eights, then five in February, then 11 in March. That's not even counting Jeskai. So when you combine Jeskai and rug together, they were 25, 22, and 35% of top eights in January, February, and March. Oh, 35. That's an impressive number for Xerox. 
Sure is. I mean, that's you're talking like gush dig levels there. Right. You know, dig dig <laughs> numbers for 28% of Q1 top eights. So it beats shops by 2%, but you have to combine rug and and, and Jeskai to get that right. number. For reference, the highest single number for Xerox in 2018 for a single month was 30%. And what month was that last year? That happens to have been March as well, interestingly. <laughs> so, <laughs> some parallels here year after yeah. year. Um, Xerox surprisingly maintained a lot of its market share in April during the London Mulligan month at 25% and has fallen a little bit in May to 21%. Interesting. So, it's basically where it was in May, where it was in February. Um, it stands to reason... So there's been a lot of isolations in Xerox. It stands to reason that if... And I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but if the deck that got people excited for the London Mulligan was a certain archetype that we haven't mentioned yet, it stands to reason that its natural foil would be Xerox. Yes. Sorry, I just want to correct something I said. I said a lot of oscillations. Rather, I meant to say the opposite. There have not been a lot of oscillations in Xerox, <laughs> relatively speaking, this, this, this right. year. It's been pretty steady. Steady, ready, you know, all all year with the jump in March. But I mean, it's it's pr- comparatively speaking, been pretty, yeah. pretty even. We're, we're I assume I should go to PO. I now. believe so. Since, so PO was the deck that saw just enormous vacillation, ice oscillation last year. We made a lot of that. Yep. Because it would go from like you know <laughs> twenty eight to six percent to seventeen percent, you know, back and yep. forth. And there was a and, and it surged to 35% at the end of 2018. And there was a lot of chatter last year about whether PO should be restricted, especially after the um, uh, Vintage Championship where Brian um, Ko- Koval won, Koal. right? Ko- Koal. And there was a lot of uh, advocates like Rich Shea and Brian Kelly saying, PO's got to be restricted, mm-hmm. right? I'm not, I'm not making this up, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, PO... This dominant juggernaut at 35% of top eights in December of 2018 fell off a cliff to 9% in January. Wow. That, that's a but steep regained, decline even for PO. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a decline of like 400%. That is the largest month-to-month decline that it has exhibited since we've been tracking this data, basically. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, but it, it regained a lot of that market share the next month when it surged to 19% in February. And then March was basically dead in between 13%, creating a Q1 yield of 13% or average. Mm-hmm. So think about that. 13% is the average PO top 8% Magic Online Vintage Challenges in 2019. So what do you think it happened in April? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, no, it's no shock that P.O. had a great influx of interest and success during the London Mulligan. Indeed. P.O. rose to 38%. Wow. And that's, which that's is, for all of April, which includes a non-London result in there. Weak. Yeah. Weak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, P.O. was so good in April, it won three of the four weeks including the week it was not, <laughs> uh, London Mulligan wasn't in operation. Right. Now, I do think there were some conflating factors here, one of which was that this occurred after the Vintage Super League, and one of the discoveries coming out of the Vintage Super League was Eko Baronin's, Andreas Peterson's uh, tech of Manigorge or Hydra in the sideboard. Mm-hmm. And so we saw a huge run in April of Bant PO decks using Manigorge or Hydra in the sideboard. And then you get the boost from the London Mulligan. I think it's just a confluence of factors that kind of 
you know, double boost, yeah. so to yeah. speak. Now, the PO decks were mixed between Bant, Grixis, and PO, and the Grixis decks were more combo-y, you know, the Tendrils, Draw 7 right. versions, um, but a lot of PO, so 38% PO. So, but here's kind of the kicker, Kevin. <laughs> May, three weeks in May, off the cliff again, even lower than January at 8% of top wow. eights. <laughs> so from December to January, <laughs> PO has its biggest decline ever, basically. And then May says, here, hold my beer. <laughs> uh, 30 percentage points, not 30%, but 30 percentage points in diminishment. That, right. that might be the, the single largest month over month change of any deck since we've been tracking this data, isn't it? Can you think of a time a deck yeah, changed I mean, by 30%? Well, in relative terms, that's an 80% decline. <laughs> yeah, that's just, that's incredible. <laughs> Obviously, there are, there are extenuating circumstances here. Yes, the London mm-hmm. Mulligan. But it's not, it's not entirely clear. Well, the other extenuating circumstances, I think, is Karn. Yes. Karn is devastating for PO. Well, and so the 38% so. that PO had in April went directly to shops in May, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> now, obviously, May's not over yeah. yet, but, but obviously the influence of Karn that you're talking about is just enormous on the metagame and on shops in general. Right. So those are the big three. Let me just round out the rest of the metagame for you. Um, Dredge, went from 9%, 9%, 13%, and an average of 11% in Q1. That was obviously January, February, and mm-hmm. March. It did surge in April to 19%. And despite the move away from the London Mulligan, it actually increased a little bit in May so far to 21%. So we'll see if that's just small sample size or whether that holds true. And just, just so everyone has but, a frame of reference on what those numbers mean, in the London period where there are three top eights to, to be counted, Dredge had two copies in the first, two copies in the second, and zero copies in the third of those three weeks. So 220 got you to the, what was it, 19%? And then since then in May, (laughs) this is totally weird. Well, there was a week before the London Mulligan. Yeah, where Dredge had two copies in that one. Two Dredges. So it was really in in April is 2220 for the top eights for Dredge. So far in May, there were three Dredge in the top eight of the first week in May, and then one and one. So, <laughs> so the results are pretty steady. I mean, it, close two 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 zero is really interesting, and then three one one is also interesting in a different way. So the it's been it's been pretty interesting for dredge. I mean, basically, you're talking about a clip of basically two dredge decks per top yeah. eight, which is better than the more regular clip of about one dredge deck per top eight. Yep. In in the past, you know, which is so dredge is doing pretty well. Um, bug in and uh, has been. Uh, you know, I'll just say averaged about 5% in Q1 and is 4% in May. Um, Eldrazi and both Eldrazi and White Eldrazi have done quite well. Um, but Eldrazi as a combined archetype is really interesting. I want to talk about it because it won the vintage playoff. Mm-hmm. So that's super notable. Um, it, it was 6% in Q1, is 8% in May. Um, and then survival is a little bit of survival, a little bit of five-color humans, and a little bit of dark times is basically the rest of the metagame. Uh, I, I didn't mention Oath. Also, Oath was 4% in Q1 and has zero top eights in April or May. Yeah. So not not sure what's going on with Oath. It always has this kind of like... It, Oath is a little bit feast or famine right. for whatever reason. Right. <laughs> well, and it's the sort of... Every deck benefits from the London Mulligan. Oath, I think, is, is probably above average in terms of benefit, but it just can't compete with the kind of benefit that... PO got so definitely so the so we'll talk about the we'll dive in a little bit more to the April period with the London Mulligan mm-hmm. um, and we're going to dive into some specific decks 
But before we do that, I want to just give you my um, Genie Simpson coefficient values, scores, Mm -hmm. as I've been doing in the past. Um, The way the Genie Simpson coefficient works is that it's scored basically from, it's zero to one basically, but um, it's almost impossible to get a score over 0.9. And I wrote this article on Eternal Central last year that showed the isolation of the Genie Simpson, showed the the Genie Simpson score from Q4 2015 on Magic Online all the way to October 2018. And you could see it goes up and down. The peaks, as you may recall, the highest value ever on Magic Online was October 2018 at almost 0.9, basically Mm 0.89, which means that it's incredibly diverse and incredibly balanced. So a bad score, the worst score ever, you may recall, was right before Thorn and Mentor were restricted, and it was about a 0.69. So just put this in your mind. 0.69 bad, (laughs) 0.89 good. That's basically the range, okay? So we're looking for scores that are closer to 0.9 and and, and higher, you know, if it's closer to 0.7, that's bad. Yep. Got it? Okay. So just to give you those values um, for this year so far, the Genie Simpson score so far has been in January 0.85, which is pretty good. That's very balanced, very diverse. 0.85 again in February. 0.86 in March. So the March was the best, most diverse, balanced month of the year. And then April, there was a significant decline to 0.8, mm-hmm. Kevin. Yeah, which... And then in May, it's, it's increased a little bit to 0.82. Yeah. What that means, practically speaking, is that the London Mulligan month is the worst month in terms of diversity and balance on Magic Online results for the entire year so far. <laughs> and not just this year, but it's, it's pretty bad by the standards of all of last year, too. There were some low months last year, but on average, it's worse than the, the average for all of last year. Yep. Yeah. I think there was only one month that was worse, maybe two months that were worse last yeah. year. <laughs> So uh, that's actually surprising. I mean, we did a whole episode on the um, London Mulligan, and you and I both concluded we thought it would be a good thing. Well, we also, it's worth noting, too, that the, the format didn't have a, a chance to really tease out the practical impacts of it, right? It took a week or so for folks to really discover the degenerate draw seven-based PO deck, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and then there was a bit of a backlash, and, and Rug Xerox won the the next challenge thereafter against grixis in the finals right so uh, there, uh, there are far too many dynamic uh, aspects to draw any conclusions about the metagame having fully evolved in that time right three weeks is not enough time to yeah. really observe it but at least from the data we have. right from the data we have and also obviously war of the spark coming in just a week later but um it's also worth noting that the format didn't fall apart either so no, it didn't it didn't go down to like the uh, thorn the pre-thorn mentor right. levels it's just not we've if the 38 percent po number was the standard in a full-on full london mulligan vintage then we have ways to address that as we've done in the past through restriction right it's not the end of the world <laughs> and the 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 truth is is that 38 percent might not be reality right we, di- we didn't have time to develop a full metagame yeah. reaction right Right. So, um, some interesting findings, just to summarize the key findings. Um, PO had a very weak first quarter this year, surged in April during the London Mulligan month, and then fell off a cliff to its worst month, like ever, just about. <laughs> yeah. If you, <laughs> um, you know, certainly in the last year and a half. If you average um, the four months that don't include the London Mulligan for PO, it's a 12% for the year. There you go. So I think it's hard. So the key finding is PO is not really well positioned at the moment 
but it did really well during the London Mulligan month. So PO has kind of fallen off a cliff. It's hard to figure out what that means in terms of metagaming if you want to play PO or if you want to play against it. Second key finding is that Shops is still doing really, really well. In fact, it's doing phenomenally well, but it did really poorly during the London Mulligan month. Yeah. Um, just Guy is steady, ready, just what you would expect. Dredge is doing better than normal with the Mulligan Mulligan and more recently, so it's hard to know why exactly, but it's it's well-positioned. I think those are the key findings. And, and the metagame, overall metagame health, was very, very good at the beginning of the year. Not quite as good since the London Mulligan or since Narset and Karn. So let's pivot to that. Mm-hmm. Kevin, I said this online on Twitter, but it strikes me that Karn and Narset arrival is reminiscent of World Wake, where you had these two pillars come in, Lodestone Golem and Jace the Mind Sculptor, and they kind of sculpted the format. Mm-hmm. I think Narset and Karn, the great creator, are providing a similar dynamic. This is kind of like, you know, Mark Twain, it's attributed to Mark Twain, history rhymes, not repeats itself. I think that's a, a good way of looking at this. There's a rhyme here between War of the Spark and World Wake. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, the parallels are strong, right? <laughs> strong in very, very many ways. Blue Planeswalker versus four mana workshop-based lock piece. <laughs> I mean, good grief. <laughs> <laughs> right. So hopefully it won't lead to restrictions, but um, Matt Murray's already talked about maybe he's said that he thinks Narset needs to be restricted. But um, uh, let's so let's dive into some of these decks. Now, the first thing I want to do, Kevin, is I want to work backwards. Since, um, meaning we'll start with the most recent and then I work, work our way chronically, chronologically backwards. The most recent key top eights are in May because they have um, Karn. And I want to point out that Karn has won the last three vintage challenges. That's impressive. Yeah. It's won May 4th, May 11th, and May 18th. Um, and um, not only that, it's top eight. It's basically like half the top eight in the last one. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and I want, to, I, want to, I want to tease apart these deck lists a little bit, just so we know what we're talking about. So um, there have been a number of these variants come out. The one that won the most recent event had four Karn the Great Creator, three Karn, three Karn Scion of Urza, one Lodestone Golem, four Revoker, four Ballista, four Grim Monolith, a bunch of Artifact Acceleration, a Crucible, a Chalice, some Mox Opals, four Spheres, one Thorn, one Trinisphere, three Voltaic Key, Blast Zone, <laughs> one Blast Zone, three Inventor Sphere, Workshops and Workshop Mana, and the sideboard has um, Time Vault, and then a bunch of other one-ofs. So this Karn deck is basically, as I'm looking at it, kind of a Key Vault Time Vault deck is what it's become. Kevin. Yeah. And the thing is, is that Karn is just so incredibly flexible in the things that he facilitates. He facilitates the, the lockdown with the Lattice. He facilitates yep. winning the game with Key Vault, especially if your deck is constructed like, like one of these at least are, to have the keys already in the main, right? You're, you're a Grim Monolith deck, so... You're already halfway there, right? Why lock your opponent out when you can just win the game right there? Which is a superior strategy if your opponent has any kind of creature-based board presence, right? So I just it's just only natural in my opinion that these Karn decks would have fantastic answers, both proactive and reactive, to the metagame. And it's gonna take Yeah. It's gonna take some time before the other decks in the metagame, especially the Xerox decks, can really evolve to fight this Karn. Right. So I've just kind of outlined this new, it's really a new Karn, Karn combo deck. It's not, it's not just like taking the old workshop deck and slamming Karn in there. Right. It's kind of rebuilt from the ground up. It's got, I mean, Inventor's Fair. The key innovative parts are Inventor's Fair, Blast Zone, 
what, well, it's just new card. Inventor's <laughs> Fair, Key, Voltaic Key, and Grim Monolith is basically the axis that we're talking about here. Yeah. Now, the third place deck is another Karn deck, but built... This is not a workshop deck. This is an Eldrazi deck, and so it, I've sorted it under Eldrazi, not shops. It's essentially Eldrazi, tribal Eldrazi, but it's got six Karns, <laughs> two Grim Monolith, and the sideboard combo is not Key Vault. It's got no keys. It's just one Mycosynth Lattice. Mm-hmm. So that's another way to approach it. And then um, in uh, in fifth place was basically a, a version of the first place deck. Um, and then there was um, and then in seventh place was another version of the first place deck. So there are three of these kind of like Karn, four Karn decks in the top eight, but three that are of this um, particular new deck. It's really a new archetype. And it doesn't really happen in vintage. We get a lot of new archetypes, you know? So this has come in in a big way. This deck also won the week before. So it's clear that that was, you know, animating people's decisions to play it. Um, Now, I did want to point out that there was a hybrid deck that our good friend um, Ryan Eberhardt won the tournament with at the beginning of the month that was a hybrid of Workshop Aggro with Karn. So we've got basically three different Karn decks. We've got the hybrid Shop Aggro Karn deck, the the Voltaic-Key-Grim Monolith combo, and then we have on beyond that the Tribal Eldrazi with Karn smashed Mm -hmm. in. The deck that Diophan won with and that then had a repeat appearance in this most recent event with the Eldrazi mixed with Karn is it's very very frightening to me like it's yes <laughs> the, they can <laughs> just smash you uh pun intended with their Eldrazi and you'll never see the Karn and they don't need to right they can just turn turn right. one revoker turn two thought not seer and you're going to have a, a typical Eldrazi turn, experience turn f- yeah turn three uh, <laughs> sm- uh smasher right. reality right. smasher <laughs> but then they have this other mode where they can just lay maybe one disruptive element, maybe a sphere or a, a revoker to slow you down just that little bit. And then Grim Monolith, Karn, and before you know it, Mycosynth Lattice, and, yeah. and you just don't get to keep playing. So You're completely <laughs> yeah. locked out. It's got a comp. It's, it kind of reminds you of like how the, the Psychotog deck could just like berserk and yeah. win. Now it's just like they play this four mana card, and the next turn you're dead. Yep. <laughs> it's just it's just you're, you're completely locked out yeah so i it's interesting that it hasn't quite happened yet i i sort of would have expected to see it a little bit more but there definitely has to be a reaction from the xerox decks that is bigger than what has happened so far let's put it that way so you're you're positing that xerox is the answer to this Karn abomination um i'm positing that Players continue to play Xerox, even in the face of this giant new threat, and as such, there probably needs to be a greater reaction to the Karn threat than just jamming more shatters into your deck. Like, Echo Baronin got sixth in the most recent event, right? Sixth place, that's a great showing, right? Right, with Jeskai. He's got Jeskai with two Narsets, a couple of Pyromancers, a couple Lightning Bolts, Main deck a spell two spell peers to fight Karn. In his sideboard, he's got plows, cages, two needles, biforce, and a ley light on the void, right? The only thing he's done to adapt to Karn so far is is a couple of main deck spell peers. And in my yeah. estimation, judging by the results and in my humble opinion, that's not enough, right? I think there needs to be a yeah. further evolution of Xerox to really target this particular colorless menace. Because the traditional tools of either creature removal or artifact removal are simply not good enough. Just not yeah. good enough. Yeah. Especially when your artifact you, removal you, is sorcery speed. 
That's something that we talked right. about Do in the set review, where a, sh- uh, a, a true shatter, an ancient grudge style effect at instant speed, can get you out of the the Karn lattice situation, right? Because you can float mana and then shatter the and kill the lattice, but you can't kill the Karn, <laughs> right? But the simple truth is, an instant speed shatter will do it for you. But a deck like Echo Baronin's here with four by force in the sideboard, not even going to come yeah, close to can't interact the with that play Agreed. basically at all. So you're positing some adjustments. Do you want to say what those are? Or keep keep just <laughs> well, I mean, that the, it's it's not it's not rocket science, right? There are counter spells that can effectively counter Karn, right? There are a couple of them. They're just ones we're not spell we're not pierce. used to using. Yeah, spell yeah. pierce is a good example. Like there could be more spell pierces. That card's not dead in other matchups, right? It's okay. And also, I think we could see a legitimate shift to different sideboard approaches to fighting shops. Pithing Needle, for example, gets way better, right? Yes. It's already omnipresent, yes. but you might see people going up to Big three time. or four copies to fight this Karn. You might see Xerox decks uh, adopting a mixture of needles and uh, Sorcerer's Spyglass for that reason. It's still nice in the mirror if your opponent is ahead of you on the and Narset advantage. By the way, how important does Blast Zone become then? In that <laughs> yeah, one, Blast know? Zone becomes very tactically useful for them. It's also worth noting that many of these Karn decks are just trying to key vault you, and so Null Rod effects become slightly more useful than they had been right these it's been a while since rug uh, rug xerox ran any kind of null rods in the main well we could see a slight return to that too yeah stony silence null yeah. rod, and then just other um, kinds of effects that, that we doesn't don't stop entirely but it does help a lot it, it helps yeah. yeah i mean they can't just straight combo you out if they're playing a two with key vault and then any other stuff that's lesser explored in the metagame that only targets colorless stuff right we've had some things that are there to fight eldrazi that could come out to play i don't know but um the first thing I could think of was Infernal Reckoning, but that doesn't help you with Karn at all. But there are other things like that. Look for the word colorless. I don't know. And so the point well, is, is that I, Xerox is the ultimate metagame deck and has been for a while, right? And this is no different. This is no different than, than Matt well, Sperling ad, uh, adopting his version that he did so well at Champs with last year. Which he had Spell Pierce and so on. I, I agree with everything you said, but I think the key takeaway, mm-hmm. the key finding is that this Karn combo deck is the hot deck. It's the it deck of vintage at the moment. Absolutely. And if you're yeah. planning for Star City Games Con, you've got to either play this or figure out a plan to beat it. <laughs> That's the bottom well line. Said. Right? I mean, well basically. Um, the other thing I just want to draw attention to, I think it's much less important because so much has happened in this last two months. I mean, I've said before, there's three things that change vintage. Banned and restricted list changes, rules changes, and new cards. Mm-hmm. And you've got the last two happening in spades. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's like almost... Um, overwhelming, mind-boggling. Um, but I did want to just roll back a little bit further, as I said I would, to the vintage playoff tournament that was won by Poker's Wizard mm-hmm. um, with Tribal Aldrazi. And just point out that that Tribal Aldrazi deck beat uh, everyone, including Montolio, <laughs> Andy Markenton, in the finals. Mm-hmm. So um, Tribal Aldrazi, um, by the way, had four null rods in the sideboard. So I think that, to me, speaks to the role that Karn is playing, right? The asymmetrical Null Rod is just, that's where you want to be. So um, that deck was already well-positioned. Now you can play Eldrazi with Karn. Mm-hmm. Now you can play Shop Aggro with Karn. Or now you can play Shop Shop Combo with Karn. Yep. Um, all very attractive options. Yeah, I definitely think that the Eldrazi-based Karn list is a, a really attractive place to start just because of the the reasons I already stated. It's a, it's a serious menace. Agreed. Um, I'm not sure there's really much more to say. Uh, I'll just point out that, you know, certainly there's a lot more we could say, but at a high level, um, PO is falling off a cliff, but there's so much diversity in PO right now between the Bant, Grixis, and Esper lists, mm-hmm. and even Blue-White PO. Um, 
I just think PO is really hurting at the moment. But the Xerox decks are almost universally running Narset now. It's just two, two, three Narsets is basically standard in Xerox. Yeah. Um, that's become de rigor. So just pointing that out. Yeah. So it's. It, I, I was trying to run the numbers to see which sees more play, Karn or Narset. It's hard to. It's hard to say. I think maybe because there's so different Karns are seeing play now. <laughs> Narset probably has the edge by a little bit, but certainly not in terms of tournament victories. <laughs> no, not in terms of victories. And the omnipresence of Narset that you just alluded to is another mark in favor of Spell Pierce right now, right? So Spell big Pierce time. is a big winner when it comes to the two most um, impactful cards from War of the Spark right now, both of them being Planeswalkers. Well, I don't really have much more to say about the tournament results. Is there anything you'd like to highlight that I haven't mentioned? No, I think I'd like to shift gears a little bit and just talk about what we should expect at SCG Con, right? We already just alluded to you need to either play this Karn deck, well, one of these Karn decks, or and or know how to beat it, right? I think that's a, a big time given going into this event. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind, you just alluded to how PO is uh, very diminished so far this year in total, and especially in May so far. But the simple yeah. truth is, is that if the SCG con is like an eight round tournament, you could still play PO two to three times. <laughs> That's a very, Definitely. a very real possibility for a large tournament. So you, you can't count it out. You have to be prepared there. And the, the Xerox deck du jour at the moment still continues to be rug. And with some of the evolutions we've talked about, right? And additional spell pierces, that kind of thing. I wouldn't be surprised to see other Xerox variants in such a large tournament, right? There have been a couple of Jeskai in the top eights of the challenges in May. So those are the two de facto, I think, uh, Xerox variants. And Narset will be omnipresent in either case. Narset, Nar the Narset deck combo is just too exciting and tasty to ignore. So that so those three decks, despite their relative swap of positioning in the last couple of months in the challenges, definitely represent the majority of the metagame with with I dredge agree. coming in fourth i have one correction to make and i'm glad we didn't finish this segment the diophan won with the eldrazi karn version not shot back right so apologies for that he because he had three ballistas but was a little bit misleading okay. but yeah he was playing he was eldrazi, playing eldrazi. Yeah. Not shop. Yeah, yeah um it's interesting though in terms of narset and dak I've, I've been playing a lot with both i still think dak is a better overall card than narset Narset does some amazing things, so I'm not on the bandwagon of restricting Narset yet. Well, and I'm not either. It's one of the things I was going to ask you about is your opinion on these two cards in the face of their polarizing effects on individual games. I do think it's not a great thing for the format, and I, I don't want to say it's net negative necessarily, but it's not a good characteristic to have these two dominant new cards both have these strongly polarizing effects on individual games, right? Karn comes down, you might just lose next turn. Narset comes down, and if it's a, if you're playing Paradoxical Outcome or Xerox, you might be out of options to fight that Narset, assuming it, it resolves for one turn, right? She protects herself with counter magic, and she prevents you from drawing cards, right? An, un yeah. an, you know, an, an undefended, sorry, an undefeated Narset can run away with a game just by sitting there with one loyalty. I don't like these aspects of these cards, and yeah. I think that it might lead to some players being unhappy with the format if these are the two dominant strategies for the prolonged future. Yeah, it can feel, I think it can feel like you're getting just squished. Right. <laughs> you know, and there's not really much you can do right. because it's so hard to remove one of these things once they've landed and the player can protect it. Yeah. It's just, there's not much you can do. I think, I think we're looking at an era where people need to start playing Pithy Needle a lot more, that kind of card, honestly. As I just, I think it's, 
you know, obviously that that's not a permanent solution, but I, I think that's kind of where we have to move, honestly. I agree with you. I think that Pithing Needle is a fantastic example, um, similar to Spell Pierce and just how uh, uniformly applicable it is. Just so happens that Pithing Needle is already an excellent sideboard card and it hoses some more fringe strategies like Dredge and Survival uh, by default anyway. So I couldn't agree more. I think it's very reasonable to say, hey, maybe I want to put one main deck Pithing Needle in my outcome deck these days, right? Just yeah. because you lose so badly to a resolved Narset with outcome. I mean, within reason, most of the time, it's just very, very bad and very hard to fight. And similarly, you simply can't have that Karn, you right. can't have that Karn go active against you. So, yeah, I think that's a good example. Well, um, I think we can move on to the SEG predictions, but I just want to also point out that Fibble Thip has appeared into Dredge Top 8. <laughs> really? So, for our report card, yeah, it's in one of these. Um Obviously, massive amounts of Karn and Narset. I can't remember who predicted more, <laughs> but probably whoever predicted more is the over is going to be the winner for yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, I did not. I did so, not notice the Fibblethip um, presence. That's really, really funny to me. <laughs> so, so Kevin, do you want to make some predictions for SEGCon? Yeah. Do you want to take the uh, percentage of the metagame kind of predictions? Is that what you're expecting? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. I mean, I, unfortunately, I will not be coming to SCGCon. You will be, and I'm I'm quite envious. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, I'm, I really wish I could. I just I got too much uh, on the road, time on the road this year, um, especially with NoobCon. Um, but I think we're looking at about maybe a hundred players for this mm -hmm. tournament, and I think you're going to see a large number of Shop Eldrazi. I think we're going to see. I think we're going to see at least thirty percent of the metagame is going to be Shop and/or Eldrazi. Honestly. I think that's fairly reasonable. Um, it's difficult to say, you know, so the peak for May so far has been 33%, as we discussed. There's probably going to be a little bit of a diminishment of that as people try to metagame against the Karn Menace. So well, remember, 30% feels like remember the ceiling. Remember, Eldrazi is budget, though. It's a budget deck. can be. It can it's be. It's not going to be that expensive. To, I mean, yeah. you want fully powered, but you can still Mycosynth Lattice an opponent. <laughs> If you're only partially powered, seriously, <laughs> with mana, mana crypt, you're absolutely right. Soul ring, you're totally right. So yeah, there's so at these unproxied events, we do see uh, a slight uptick in budget decks. I would not call the current spate of Eldrazi Karn decks budget decks, right? I mean, these are fully powered decks. No, but you're you're completely correct. You can build a budget Eldrazi deck that in, uh, includes this Karn, and it will probably and be you successful. You could probably play and Mo Mox Opals without even being fully powered if you even have half the power. Anyway, yeah, interesting. Good point. So Grim Monolith gets you there, helps you get there as well. I, I just don't see, I think 30% is the floor for combination shop and Eldrazi at SEG. So Con. I feel like the actual Karn decks will probably be a bit less than what they've been in the challenges. But to your point, that will be bolstered then by the presence of some budget or budget adjacent Eldrazi type lists. So yeah, I think a 30% target is reasonable for that archetype family as a whole. I think PO is going to be around. It's it's people still are going to see PO one last year. And it's fun to play in mm -hmm. paper. I think PO we're looking at. I know we've seen some weird PO results at Vintage Champion Champs, <laughs> where you had like really small and then really large. Um, well, never really large. I think it, minimum is ten percent, but I think you're going to probably see maybe twelve to fifteen percent PO, maybe a little bit more. Could be eighteen percent ish. What do you think? I think it'll be higher than the eight percent for May. I agree with you there. I think it'll be closer to the Q1 average of thirteen percent and. I think that similar to the Japanese event that we had in paper, there will be some players who see the London Mulligan results for PO and get excited by the draw seven 
added lists, right? The Grixis lists. And even though we're not experiencing the London Mulligan at SCGCon, I think there'll be a couple of players who show up with more Wheel of Fortunes in their PO decks than we're used to <laughs> because it's exciting. It's an exciting variant. And Narset, Narset adds that whole blowout potential. So, Big yeah. time. And Narset's already good in the PO and Xerox mirrors, right? So yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think we'll see a 13 to 15% PO as players are attracted to the new powerful tools that Narset and Draw 7s provide. I hope you're keeping track of these numbers, Kevin. <laughs> um, so for Xerox, but I think Rug is going to be more popular than Jeskai, but Jeskai is going to be catching up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to see, again, minimum 20%. I think Jeskai, I think Xerox is going to be pretty popular, at, uh, especially because you have Lavinia, all these different tools. I just think, I think there's a lot, a lot to commend in Xerox with Narset. So I think Xerox is going to be at least 20%. Yeah, and the last last year's SCG Con showed a very strong showing for Xerox, and I think that the number can really kind of only go up from there. The problem is, is that the there's going to be so many players on the Karn and Shops inspired decks, but Narset has her own in con- her own contingent as well. I think we'll see a collapsing of the metagame into the three primary pillars here, and so I'm predicting I'm predicting probably 25% Xerox. Okay. Are you noting this in our show I notes? I am now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll let you put that in our SCG predictions so that we can test those when we get the yeah. results. What do you think about Dredge? Dredge is really the last one that we should you, probably try to put a number to. Um, I think that Dredge is going to be popular, but I think it's got a ceiling at about 15%. It's just not possible for a lot of people to feel, you know, to come in with Dredge. It'll have a dedicated contingent, but it's not going to be more than 15%. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you too. There is a dedicated contingent. There always is in these large events. And to me, it's 15% feels pretty high. I'm, I'm feeling 12% at the moment. Yeah, I said that's the ceiling. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. Um, Do we want to try and tease out shops separate from Eldrazi? Like, or tease out the, the portion of the metagame that's just Eldrazi? It's... I think it's too The line is so blurred honest. now. Like, we're going to see budget Eldrazi yeah. with no Karns. We're going to see Eldrazi Karn. We're going to see four <laughs> different flavors of shops that have different levels of Carnage. I mean... <laughs> well put. It, it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> carnage indeed. Yeah, so it could be that our reduction of, of approximately 30% for shops is was over simple. What with the those different variants. Well, I said that's the floor. Yeah. I said that's the floor. Yeah. I mean, you could see 35%. You, know, you definitely could. That would those. not surprise me at all. Yeah. yeah. I think Oath is going to be a small part, just a couple percent. Bug, maybe a little bit, a tick more than, than Oath. Maybe a little bit of Landstill type decks, maybe some Grixis decks. There's always, fi- um, there's always 5% what? big blue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, well put. And then, uh, and then uh, Five Color Humans was uh, popular on the VSL, so maybe one or two, you know, a couple of yeah. those. But otherwise, yeah, it's pretty consult. I mean, Narset and Karn are just gobbling up metagame share. Yeah, absolutely. So be, be on those bandwagons or be quite ready. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm excited. I'm excited to see the results, Kevin. Good luck to you. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening to episode 90 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other magic players can find us. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.